Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Good. Good morning. You know, before we started recording, I didn't even ask you uh, a really obvious question that our listeners will have to just trust me on. Is that Queen Elizabeth over your shoulder? It is. It's <laughs> a, uh, there's a great wallpaper company in Brooklyn called Flavor Paper. Um, and so they do like incredible um, uh, wallpapers that are all handmade. And this is a reproduction of a Warhol print. Amazing. Um, so uh, put it up in my new home office that I built uh, mid-pandemic to give myself a little uh, uh, a little escape area in my house. And Queen Elizabeth, is she someone you admire or you just thought the wallpaper was that cool? <laughs> well, I love, I love uh, Warhol for one. Um, yeah. I grew up largely in Canada um, with sort of the Commonwealth, um, I think love of, uh, of uh, British history. Um, and I also just uh, been raised by a single mother and just always had strong women behind me. And I was, I thought it was kind of a powerful symbolic way of sort of showing the idea of, you know, the, what's enabled me to get where I am is always having strong women behind me. And, um, it kind of just, uh, when I saw it, I was like, that's what needs to be there. I love it. I knew I was going to love you, Erin. You said strong women <laughs> in the first five minutes, the first minute of our recording. Uh, but we're going to talk about a lot more than that, but maybe that too. That's enough uh, right there. I know. Well, welcome to the Now of Work. This is our podcast. We have this whole amazing community of people, followers, listeners, uh, people like you, people like me who want to make work better for people. We stopped talking about the future of work when the pandemic struck and we said, it's here, it's now, it's our time. Let's make work better. Um, and, and everything we were sort of predicting or anticipating or hoping for either fell apart or it arrived on our doorsteps in the form of a pandemic. And so let's go. I say, let's go. Uh, let's, let's change some things right now in my lifetime. Uh, there are a few things specifically that I'd like to see happen. Uh, there's something I know you're incredibly passionate about and you've, you speak about it, you write about it, you've got books and it's all, it's something I'm incredibly passionate about too, because I think we all need to be dialed into it. If we're going to have impact, contribute value, uh, enforce or enable or empower change to happen. And I think that, I think it's actually foundational to, to just about everything and that's purpose, but what a big word, Aaron, how do we even talk about purpose? No, it is a, it is a big word. And I think um, when I first sort of really became a leading advocate for sort of bring that to the business context about 10 years ago, um, there was, I think, um, much narrower understanding of the word. I think what we've been able to do since then is apply science to understand actually um, what is purpose really and what is it not? Um, what creates the sense of purpose, um, what doesn't? So I think we've been able to go from it being something poetic to something much more scientific, which uh, I think is really promising. We've also just seen in the last 10 years, we've really seen that tipping point where um, I really believe, you know, to the title of my book, The Purpose Economy, like we've really shifted with the pandemic fully into a purpose economy where you know, where the focus before was digital transformation with the information age. We're now seeing really purpose transformation around um, how are we enabling people uh, to truly, you know, optimize value and also optimize meaning for themselves. And that, that's what's driving innovation today. And that's what's driving uh, the, the workplace overall. So, yes. <laughs> 
for whose purpose? I love all of this, but for whose purpose? And this is a really nuanced shift that I, like, I'm trying to understand and I'd love to dig into a little bit for you. I think we've always seen people as a vehicle for value that organizations can, can tap into. In other words, the business needs to win. The organization needs to win. Everything needs to be for the good of enterprise, profit. Uh, and now it seems like we're toying with the idea that maybe organizations exist to improve the lives of humans. And that happens to be profitable when we do that, but we have to trust that. Am I going too far when I suggest that? No, I think that's true on multiple fronts. I think that's true on a consumer front, um, where ultimately for a business to be successful, it has to solve for real needs. Um, I think we've seen some manipulation with technology um, and innovation of actually um, creating addiction instead of actually meeting needs. Um, I think that's something we need to, to work to fix. But with that aside, and the other major piece is the labor market, which is what you know you and I are focused on. And you know, every conversation I'm having with folks is really about the fact at the core of it that we've gone from you know, hundreds of years ago, like the, the fundamental employee value proposition was, you know, work for me or die. Like that pretty much was like early days, whether that was slavery, whether that was just, you know, feudal society, um, you fundamentally had a very simple employee value proposition that sort of shifted with the um, industrial economy where we started seeing unions form and you started to see somewhat of a collective voice, at least of labor. Um, and then in the information economy, where we started seeing knowledge workers become what was the uh, mechanism for value creation, you started to see employees start to have uh, more power than they ever had before, where actually companies were having to meet the needs because of the scarcity of that talent. And now in the perfect economy and the pandemic, what we're seeing is that without question, employees now have the upper hand in terms of um, you know, which companies are going to succeed and fail just based on you know, what they're, where they're willing to go, um, what they're willing to do. And that as a result of that, I think that's created the very clear economic pressure on companies to, for the first time, truly think about, oh my God, maybe we actually have human beings working inside our organization. And maybe we should actually treat these people like we want to treat our family, not like they are them, but that they're actually part of us. And uh, that to me is incredibly encouraging, just that we're finally at that state where you no longer can really have that that macro message of people as resources, um, but more as the value creators. I love that too. I think it's incredibly uh, hopeful and I think it's about time. It's, it's unfortunate and, and even concerning to me that it requires uh, sort of economic levers to be pulled or to be positioned in a certain way in order for that to happen, in order for that to be true. I've always believed that we deserve meaning and fulfillment at work, but we do we literally require the economic conditions and, and, and does business recovery literally need to hinge on uh, caring, caring about people in order for that to be true? In other words, could this fall apart if power shifts back away from people and to corporate stakeholders or to business leaders, political leaders, um, is, is this reliant on employees actually holding the power to say, no, I get to have this. This gets to be yeah. for me. I think there's I, two things I follow there. One is I mean, every prediction and projection I've seen um, shows that this, this market dynamic is here for the foreseeable future. This is not like a short-term blip and it may never go back to a previous sort of model in terms of that power dynamic. So that's where the first piece. I think the second is 
this is going to be a long enough period of time that it's going to establish that treating people as human beings is economically more beneficial to the organizations on such a wide um, sector of the economy that you'll no longer have to prove that point. Whereas in the past, um, there weren't there were small examples of people doing this, but they were never credible from a large enterprise perspective. I think what we're going to see now is so many case studies of this working um, that it will finally, I think, give CEOs the courage to maintain that, even when they may be operating more out of a fear basis. Mm-hmm. So, Aaron, you know that at LeapGen, we're, we, we design workforce experience, including you know, how are technology solutions and programs and other things uh, constructed in a way to support a person's employment journey and, yep. and ideally like a, a beautiful experience of work where they feel, feel, yep. um, you know, aligned to organizational purpose. They feel a sense of fulfillment. Uh, they know the value and contribution they make, um, and how that adds, uh, to business value. Um, and so we take that approach. And when you talk about a whole person approach, one of the challenges for me, because I feel like I've been evangelizing these these like Pollyanna concepts for so long, sometimes I have to do a gut check with myself to say, is this really true? Should this really be true? Or am I just, does it just sound good? And when, when I talk about whole person approach, I, re- I reference Maslow's hierarchy of needs quite a bit. We have our basic needs for safety and, and, and somebody, you know, the care and feeding of your workforce is the equivalent of air, food, safety, water sort of thing. And then you move up the hierarchy of needs. Um, and as human beings, the things that make us feel psychologically safe, physically and emotionally safe, uh, a sense of emotional fulfillment and, and all of those things, as we move up the hierarchy, again, that equates to something at work? Do I feel a sense of belonging? Am I able to be creative and collaborative? Do I feel like I'm inventing something special and new? Am I I valuable? Um, And when I really challenge myself to think about that from a workplace perspective, I don't think employers have deserved people in that way. And so there's there's also a sense of uh, trust that needs to be established if we're really going to say, show up as your whole self, give me your purpose, your meaning, I will align that as an employer to our organizational purpose and the reason we exist as an organization, I'm asking you to show up in exchange for incredible uh, fulfillment, purpose-driven work, et cetera. I don't think employers have deserved that so far. So how do we make that true? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a broad statement. I think it's all over the map. Um, I think there's also like a couple of things to start unpacking what you said, Jess. I think one is Maslow's hierarchy, I think it's a very useful model. Um, it's been somewhat debunked over time in certain ways that are important. I think one of the biggest ways is mindset. And you actually find with different mindsets, it starts to change that pyramid somewhat. Um, so, I mean, I've done a lot of work abroad and in developing countries, and you find people who have very basic needs not met that are actually doing things at a higher level in that pyramid and who are actually fulfilled. Um, I think we've built a uh, pyramid that's based on the assumption that someone has a fear-based mindset versus a hope-based mindset. And that's a lot of what that pyramid represents, which is very valid, but I think it's important to also understand um, that that's not a given and that in many cultures, actually, that's not um, not as relevant. Um, And that if we address the mindset part, um, we can actually start to address 
address some of those other pieces as well. So that's sort of the first piece. To the question about deserve, I think one of the things that I found in the research we've done, because we've done considerable research with you know, academic institutions like NYU and Michigan, but also with you know, companies like PwC and LinkedIn, just really looking at this question from a data-driven standpoint. I think the first thing that's really important to understand is there's no such thing as a meaningful job, period. Like that's not a thing. Um, psychologically, we are the ones that create meaning. Um, it doesn't matter, <clears throat> as I say, if you're saving burning babies all day, that doesn't necessarily bring you meaning. And if you're doing accounting all day, that doesn't necessarily not bring you meaning. It's not the job that creates the meaning. It's actually the process of reflection and cr creating meaning for that work that creates the actual sense of fulfillment. So I think this, in the past, what we focused a lot on is, you know, how do we change the environment? How do we like create better managers? These things are really important. But at the end of the day, for work to be fulfilling, for it to be meaningful, it has to be built off of creating space for reflection in the workplace so that people are actually creating that meaning. And that's why you see so many people burning out is because they're just working, working, working. There's no space for reflection. Therefore, none of that's actually getting stored and creating that um, resilience um, that people need. So I, I think we've been largely thinking about this the wrong way. It really comes back to how do we actually enable each employee to own their own experience and give them the tools to own that experience. There's only so much that can be done at an environmental level. Um, it really comes down to the psychological journey of each employee and helping be sort of that co-pilot with them to help them continuously basically craft their job, to craft their experience based on their own psychological needs and what's going on for them. And that's really where I've been focused is based on the research is very much how do we put employee experience in the hands of employees? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that came in with whatever happened in the morning, they're the ones that have other stuff going on in their lives. They're the ones that bring all kinds of baggage, um, good, bad, and otherwise. They're the ones that are you know, interacting and reacting to things in their environment. How are you helping them then sort of truly take control of their experience? So I know that's sort of a long-winded, yeah. um, somewhat divergent answer to your question, but that's how I we look it. at it based on the research. I love it. You're sort of, you're, you're flirting with empowerment, which I've, I've always said as much of the talent experience as we can democratize. In other words, take the, you know, the, the employer should not hold the keys to the kingdom when it comes to um, role design, when it comes to even organizational culture, to some extent, I think I, I don't, I'd love to, to go there too. We can go down that rabbit hole. Um, but even in terms of, uh, you know, how I'm most effective or most productive, how you comp and benefit me, how you like, why is that all sort of mandated or, or, you know, pre-designed by an employer where the employee is completely faceless? Why is there not more personalization and sort of democratization to say, this is the value we need to have created for the advancement of the business. Uh, and we think that you can add quite a bit of, you know, that you can contribute in really meaningful ways. You tell me, human being, how would you like to perform this job? How is it best uh, designed for you? What would you like your experience to be? All, all I care about is the value, the ultimate value that, yeah. that you create that's beneficial to me. That's why we're in a relationship together. But why have we not put more power in the hands of employees to say, and how do you need to be paid for this? We don't care what, you know, so, so again, finally, our hands yeah. have been forced in a lot of ways where I think a lot of this is going to happen, but what else needs to change in order to, um, 
to, to make that shift, to fully make that shift where employees get to design their own experience, control their environment to some extent with support. I love the idea of co-piloting, um, so, sort of hold their own passport, their own career passport. Yeah, I mean, there's different pieces to it. I mean, you bring up compensation. I think that one's trickier to think there's so much bias and discrimination and compensation that there's a whole and there's all kinds of different issues wrapped up in that one. So that one's a little bit hairier, if you will, in terms of how to address it. Um, you know, if you look at the digital transformation industry, which there is a large industry of helping companies go through digital transformation. And if you look at a large part of that is building agility um, into the process and sort of a simplified version of agility and a version of looking at agile of identifying your key performance indicators. Um, what is it that would define that something's successful? So as a software developer, you know, what, how would you know if you're improving your, your KPIs on that software? Um, putting out your best guesses as new features or new changes, um, put those in market, see whether or not it affects the KPIs positively or negatively or flat, and then based on that, change your software again. And it's this continuous improvement process. And that's a lot of what digital transformation is about, is about building that um, into how you're developing products, how you're making decisions. What we found is that it's that exact same process that is needed for human transformation in the workplace, sort of the post digital transformation, this human or purpose transformation phase, we need to apply that agility model to our careers and to our work. So um, what does this look like? It means, first of all, knowing what your personal purpose is. Because if you don't know your purpose, you don't know your KPIs. You don't know what actually matters to you. So being very clear on what is your purpose, and we've been able to basically break that down scientifically so that we can determine someone's purpose in about 10 minutes um, through psychological profiling then understanding how fulfilled someone actually is at work, because those are their true KPIs. Are you fulfilled at work? And breaking that down into sort of three main elements of fulfillment. So you have those as a way to see whether or not, um, you know, how you're performing in terms of your job meeting your needs, right? And then the critical piece is then every two weeks doing a sprint, which is what you do in software development, two-week sprint. So you do a two-week sprint, um, and at the beginning of that sprint, you sit down with a co-pilot, a peer coach, we call them, and you actually talk through how's work going, what's happening with you, and then you identify one sort of new feature, one experiment you want to do to make your work more fulfilling. You then commit to each other you're going to do that. And then two weeks later, when you get back at the tail end of that sprint, you say, did you do it? Um, and we're finding 83% of the time people are saying they did that action because there was that accountability because they designed that change. And then they're saying almost every single time it increased their fulfillment and engagement. Um, so if you keep this up as a new model of work where every two weeks you're basically doing sprints to manage your career like it's agile, this is, we believe, the future of work. Um, it's applying that agility model to um, the employee experience that so they're taking ownership and they're proactively taking those changes into their own hands. I absolutely love that. What a, what a brilliant concept. What does it take from a leadership standpoint to make these? I mean, this is a pretty big, it's a culture shift. And when you talk about organizational purpose, okay, first question first, organizational yep, yep. purpose, individual purpose. Yep. I hear a lot. I talk a lot. I, there are a lot of conversations around alignment, getting those two to meet. So is it chicken or the egg kind of thing? Is it is it truly the organization needs to have a purpose and everybody see, sort of needs to find a way to hook their cart to that? Or is it, no, our organizational purpose is for you to have uh, your purpose defined and met and fulfilled in an, in an environment that's supportive and that benefits from that? Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite 
example someone gave us that if you look on, this is maybe five years ago, if you looked on Glassdoor at Monsanto and then the Gates Foundation, you actually found people at Monsanto were much happier at work than those at the Gates Foundation, right? Wow. Um, which as a progressive, they're like, you know, they're pretty diametrically um, opposed, um, yeah. which to me speaks to individual purpose matters way more than organizational purpose. Um, if individuals are clear on their purpose and working with that, it doesn't really matter as much what the company does or is doing, because they're going to be able to sort of show up in some way with what they matters to them. And if the company's not the right fit, they'll go somewhere else, which they should anyway. Organizational purpose is important. Um, I think it's really critical from a leadership standpoint, but I would say of that equation, I would estimate 80% of it is uh, individual, 20% organizational. Um, and I also, it's not, it's alignment. It's, it's more like a Venn diagram. So if you think about organizational purpose on one side, individual, there's a sliver where they connect. And the key is to basically help operate within that overlap, not that you'd have complete um, mm -hmm. and total uh, alignment. The only people who generally have total alignment are founders because mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're one and the same. So I have complete alignment because I'm the CEO of my company. It's a manifestation of my purpose, right? It's not realistic to think that everyone else in the company is going to have that level of alignment. Um, and what's more important is for them to see their purpose and the, that, that overlap area where they can thrive. Mm. I love that. I knew I was going to love this conversation. <laughs> Aaron, let's get personal for a second. So what's your purpose? What would you like to see happen in your lifetime? Yeah, I mean, my purpose um, in uh, poetic terms is to uh, awaken lions so they can care for their tribe. Their, this is where the, um, yeah, what their pride, sorry. This is my like little post illness uh, speaking. So <laughs> to uh, awaken lions, they can care for their pride. So uh, to me, it's about having people be more courageous and to operate out of hope instead of out of fear um, so that they're better able to care for themselves, but also care for themselves and their community. Um, that's what really drives me. And that's really what, you know, imperative my company is about is really helping people stay awake, um, stay connected to hope, stay connected to sort of their, uh, positive and optimistic view of the future and to have that drive their actions in society so that, you know, whether it's at a company level at a broader societal level, people are fundamentally showing up in a way that's going to help us move forward instead of, I think, this growing fear-based negative part of our culture um, where people are no longer operating out of hope. Um, they're no longer operating out of love. They're operating out of fear. And that's, I think, creating a huge challenge for our democracy, for the environment, um, for so many different parts of our society. So that's really what, you know, what drives me. Um, when I think about it in terms of a manifestation with my company, with Imperative, you know, our goal is to get to a million conversations a day on our platform, mm. where every day a million conversations are happening, where people are finding that hope, finding that optimism, um, committing to positive action that they're taking to make their lives better and the lives of those around them. And then if we can get to that million conversations a day place that we'll actually see a sea change, not just at companies, but in a broader society. Um, so that's really what I you know, have out there as my goal around manifesting that purpose. I absolutely love it. And is it pure coincidence that you made a comment early on about being uh, raised and supported and inspired by so many strong women early in your life? Um, I think it's uh, hard to hard to know the deep, the exact connection. I know for sure women are much more likely to be purpose-driven than men. Um, and that definitely, I think, has a big influence um, on me just sort of looking at that um, as a variable. I think it's 
I think to me, a lot of this comes out of like my my background, um, being of Jewish descent, but raised Buddhist by my parents, and sort of the connection of those two those two uh, cultures um, and philosophies about life. I think has a, had a huge influence on me, um, and how how we built imperative and how I how I look at the world. Um, so a bunch of a bunch of different influences, but you know, I think it's uh, at the end of the day, like I feel like the work we're doing. If it's doing nothing else, we're seeing it's having a huge impact on women. Um, women are much more likely to use the platform. They're showing um, incredible um, impact from it. And I think a lot of what it's doing is it's taking traditionally female ways of engaging at work, um, turning those into systems that then everyone in the company can engage in. So we're actually taking sort of stereotypical women traits, which are actually the ones that are the ones needed for the new workforce. Um, and it's systematizing those so that the whole organization starts to adopt those behaviors. That's incredible. Uh, I feel like we just got to the gold. <laughs> why, why do you think women are more purpose-driven? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just very consistent in the data. I mean, we did studies with LinkedIn around the world and the countries where women have more rights and are seen as leaders have much higher levels of purpose. When we look at people's orientation to work, women are much more likely to have um, a sense of purpose. I think a bunch of different hypotheses around it. I think a big part of it is our society pushes men a lot around performance in a certain way. And there's a lot of toxic masculinity, I think is the terms used for it now, um, around that. And that that actually gets in the way of men being more connected to the why of their work. It becomes more about ego and more about having to show their manhood um, and show their success. Whereas I think that, that pressure is not on women as much um, from that perspective. And they've been able to be more connected to what matters. So that's sort of my working hypothesis of what's you know, largely at the core. Um, I know for me, it's a constant struggle because there is that societal voice about like a certain type of success, a certain way of showing up and having to like realize that that's just, you know, societal pressure. It's not what actually matters. Mm. What do you think? Well, you know, I, when I, when I talk about uh, empowerment and Lately, I guess in the last couple of years, everybody is is you know happy to jump on the diversity and inclusion, the belonging bandwagon. So even when I apply, you know this this kind of thinking to conversations around inclusion and belonging, I think women make incredible champions and allies more than men mm-hmm. um, because it behooves us because it makes our life better if we elevate the experience and, um, and outcomes of underrepresented, um, disadvantaged, underprivileged. Uh, and so I, I do think, so I wonder if there's some correlation there as well, um, because it makes our lo- collective lives better if we tie to a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. Because when you're, when, when you're historically sort of oppressed or suppressed, yeah, in a yeah. system as women and lots of other sure, demographics sure. have been, I think it's it's to our collective benefit to champion something better, to, champ- to champion or become allies to, to others who need championship, um, that things can be better or improved than current circumstances. Obviously, if it benefits you, you're going to, you're going to throw your weight behind it. But I love what you said too. That's a way different way of thinking about it. I think it's also, and I'm sure you can relate to this, but I think society also tells girls at a young age and women that like a lot of their job is to serve others. And I think that that approach of service ties to um, purpose. The idea that like um, we exist to help others, we exist to support other people um, actually leads to a healthier in many ways approach to work and that, you know, 
if done properly, it creates servant leaders, right? Um, whereas men are taught to act and to lead and to sort of, you know, break through the wall, um, which generally leads to abrasive, destructive leadership, right? Mm -hmm. So while there's a lot of problems, I think with the narrative around women need to serve, and I think there's a lot that has to be done to like address the problems that are associated with that. The positive side of it, I think, is it does build a better, better mental model about your relationship with work, your relationship with other people. That's where I think we get a little twisted around the axle. It, what you just said, women you know, have learned or have been taught to serve. If you just change the narrative, like what's wrong with that? What's wrong with service to others? What, what if we change the narrative to say, it is the job of leaders to serve. It is the job of companies and organizations to serve. It is the job of politicians to serve. Then that makes women really well suited <laughs> for those roles if we happen to have been conditioned all along to do that, right or wrong, if we've been conditioned to do Maybe everybody should be conditioned to do that. So again, I have you know issues with some of the, the narratives around this. Same with- It's just hard to switch. Know. It's a question, what do you do in the interim? Like that's definitely mm -hmm. the like, promised land. Yes. In the interim, I think the problems arise when women are sort of taught to think that way. And it's often in service of men. And then the men get the mm -hmm. promotions because they're held up by the women. And that's not healthy or constructive because it both keeps women out of those leadership roles, which are needed to get to your, your vision. Um, and it's also just fundamentally unfair to women and sort of keeps them down. So I think it's, how do you how do you achieve that goal um, while sort of addressing the short-term, hopefully short-term uh, dynamics it creates in the workplace and in society. Yeah. So I have to ask this because we're, you know, we're sort of conditioned to think about so what outcomes, what are the, what does this look like when it's, when, what does this look like as a success story? What are the measures of success? What do you actually see when you see change improvement in this area? What does the individual look like or what does the organization look like? Who's, who has evolved? Yeah, I mean, I sort of look at it at different stages. So like before each of our peer coaching conversations on the imperative platform, the two people ask each other, how are you feeling today? And typically they say overwhelmed, stressed, anxious, um, most of the time with pretty negative feelings that they're experiencing day to day. At the end of a one hour intimate conversation with a peer from somewhere in the company, they ask, ask again, how are you feeling now? And it's usually, you know, inspired, relieved, um, hopeful, um, very different emotional state. Uh, we actually looked at it um, quantitatively and found it was a 2.4 times more positive emotional state just from having a meaningful conversation with another person. So that's what it looks like on a very micro scale. Um, we sort of take it one step out further as what we're seeing is um, purpose enabling us to build relationships between people of different backgrounds and break down silos inside an organization. Those might be silos between marketing and technology. They might be between white and black employees. They might be between, between employees of different uh, countries. We're actually starting to see purpose and this peer coaching actually break down a lot of those silos to build belonging, to build inclusion, to build innovation inside a company. So, you know, as I look at that as sort of a midterm output, um, I see that piece. The long-term overall output, I think, is fundamentally a society where hope and optimism is the dominant narrative and where fear um, and hate is the minority perspective. Um, and that's what ultimately enables us as a society, I think, to find a way to rise to the level of challenge that we have today. So that's, that's sort of how I think about it. That's sort of micro, mid, and then sort of macro impact of doing this work. I love it. 
Erin, it has been such a pleasure. Uh, I, I know everybody listening to this episode is nodding in violent agreement. I, I feel a, a sense of, in all of the conversations I have, personally, professionally, out in the, in the community, in the industry, in this space, I feel like this, speaking of hope, I feel a sense of hope, almost like tentative hope. Like we really want to believe that this is actually happening, that it's actually true, that it's sort of our moment, our time as human beings. Uh, I, I hate the term work-life balance as if the two have been mutually exclusive all along, uh, that somehow we have to juggle them on a teeter-totter. I, like I, I hate the, so finally we've sort of taken down, you know, sort of removed walls and like erased lines and humans, uh, have been forced to, but we sort of get to be human, authentic, yeah. real, uh, flawed and imperfect, but also hopeful and inspired. Like it's finally time for us to have some pretty real conversations around this. No, absolutely. And I actually love it. My uh, 13 year old son and I were talking about that last week and he made a great um, analogy, which I, I love it. Kids often come up with the best analogies, but he was just yeah. talking about sports and he's like, if your your team's down by three touchdowns and you're a fan, um, you can look at that statistically and be like, you know what, you know, it's the end of the third quarter. I'm going to leave and go to the parking lot, right? Um, and that's you know appropriate behavior. If you're a player on the field, you have to be focused on, even if it's a narrow chance, what is the one path to success? Because you've got skin literally in that game, right? And the you have to not think about the odds, not think about what's likely to happen. You have to think about what is the path that'll get you to the victory. And I think with what we're talking about today, no one can be a spectator. Like we are all on the field for this because this is fundamentally the survival of our planet, of our species, um, of humanity at stake. And if anyone's just sitting on the bad line being you know, cynical and decided to sort of want to sit and watch everything implode, like that to me is the most irresponsible perspective you can take. Everyone has to buy into being on the field right now and looking for that one path to a victory, even if it's a narrow chance to get there. If you're not focused on that, there's no way in hell we're gonna get there. I love it. Tell your son I love his analogy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you everybody for listening. Aaron Hurst, thank you for being my guest. My pleasure. CEO and co-founder of Imperative. We'll put all of the right links uh, in the in the show notes for everybody to check out. Any, any special way you'd like people to follow or find you? Any special resources you'd love to call out? No, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so definitely uh, connect with me there. And uh, we do a lot of regular sort of research. So, you know, um, it's posted on LinkedIn, posted on our site. So I uh, look forward to hearing from folks. Awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Jess.